Last Sunday in El Salvador, Nayib Bukele won the presidency again in a landslide. He wasn't supposed to run a second time. The country's laws prevent that. But he managed to stay on the ballot. And even with glitches in the vote count, roaring crowds celebrated his victory. You know, he's a very young leader. He's about 42. And his image is very much of the kind of outsider, reformer, cool guy. Mary Beth Sheridan is a Post correspondent based in Mexico City. She has been covering Central America for years. She says Bukele stands out, and that was clear during his election night speech. Bukele did tell the huge crowd gathered in the Central Square that no one in history has won the sort of popular mandate he's won. And he said it's the first time that a country has come to a one-party system via a full democratic process. The opposition has been smashed. He said, Salvadorans have provided an example to the entire world. That any problem can be solved if you only have the will. Mary Beth says that to many, Bukele's popularity is striking. I'm just so surprised that it's so blunt that he is embracing and accepting the idea that multi-party democracy is finished, at least for the moment, in El Salvador, that basically one party truly does have control of the country. Bukele remains overwhelmingly popular because of his crackdown on gangs and despite the costs to human rights and democracy. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 7th. Today, Mary Beth Sheridan on the rise of Nayib Bukele and what his re-election means in El Salvador and beyond. So, Mary Beth, I want to start in a kind of unusual place. I'm hoping that you can tell me what is the self-described nickname of Naib Bukele. Bukele calls himself the world's coolest dictator. He had given himself that title on Twitter. The world's coolest dictator? Yep, that's it. And <laughs> How do you say that in Spanish? I'm curious. You know... It's actually something he really uses in English because part of his image is very much projected outside of Salvador and trying to persuade the international community that he is, in fact, not a dictator. He's trying to be funny. He constantly emphasizes how popular he is, and he is enormously popular. But even that he is calling himself a dictator, that he's, like, saying the quiet part out loud. Like, what what does that say to you, that this man has sort of embraced this persona publicly and, like, tried to make it, quote-unquote, cool to be a dictator in a way that I think is, like, unfathomable for someone who's not familiar with the political situation there? You know, I think on the one hand, he's kind of redefining the terms of politics in Central American, Latin America, he's basically saying, 
oh, you thought that was democracy before, that that system that was corrupt and didn't deliver for people. Well, you call me a dictator, but I'm popular. I'm delivering for all these people. And in saying cool dictator, I think he's sort of just pushing back hard against criticism from abroad and saying, you know, I know what's best for my people and trying to uh, almost take the sting, I suppose, out of those words or discredit them. Interesting that, like, there are people with very legitimate concerns that he is an authoritarian leader that is dangerous in some ways, but that if he brands himself the cool dictator, that it kind of takes the punch out of those accusations of like, well, I call myself that too, so it's fine. That's right. And he constantly puts out, you know, videos of himself walking around or talking to people and saying, here's a bus or something where people before were too afraid to ride or they'd be extorted or whatever it is, and now things are great. And people call me a dictator when, you know, I've transformed the lives of people so much. So he pushes back quite hard at that nomenclature and is unafraid to try to kind of relabel the system that exists. Wow. He's 42. He typically wears jeans and formal clothes, a backward baseball cap. He emphasizes kind of his informal style. And I think he is viewed by Salvadorans as a very charismatic figure, for sure. In some ways, Bukele is sometimes compared to former President Trump. Mm. He's a bit of a showman. He brought in Bitcoin as a legal currency in El Salvador. He has hosted the Miss Universe pageant. Please put your hands together for President Bukele. El Salvador has changed forever, and we have demonstrated it here once again. It has been an honor to welcome the delegates, the organizers, the visitors from different countries. Miss Universe has given us the opportunity to show the world the country we are building. But what he's known for more than anything else is having really crushed the gangs that for so long really held sway in El Salvador and at one point had really turned it into what was called the murder capital of the world. He's led a very fierce crackdown and that has really transformed the security situation in the country, made it quite a bit safer. He was first elected in 2019, previously the mayor of San Salvador, Uh, He's a guy with a marketing background and is extremely adept at social media and putting forth his vision of the country and what he's doing. So given all that, what is the mood in El Salvador right now? And what are people's reactions to him winning this election? Well, people poured into the central plaza of San Salvador even before the election results started coming in Sunday night. Bukele himself appeared to proclaim that he had won, but people were very happy. My colleague, uh, Carmen Valeria Escobar, was in San Salvador. Right now, I'm in the main square of downtown El Salvador, and what you hear behind me is actually people cheering and dancing and celebrating what they think right now is Bukele's victory. They are wearing Nayib Bukele merch, Nayib Bukele t-shirts with his face in it. Uh, wearing baby blue, that is uh, the color of his party. And people are really excited, celebrating. This is a party downtown San Salvador. 
primero, preséntese, dígame su nombre. Milton Mendes, para servirle. Mecánico automotriz. Carmen spoke with Milton Mendes. Mecánico automotriz. He's a 53-year-old auto mechanic, and he talked about how happy he was, how he felt justice had been done. He said the gangs had killed his daughter, and now he was seeing, finally, some retribution. He's both happy and crying because he's so happy that Bukele won and that the gangs are now locked up and he credits Bukele with that success. What is your reaction to, to hearing that, hearing the way that Mendez spoke about this? You know, I think the thing is that even critics of Bukele acknowledge that the people of El Salvador suffered tremendously under these gangs. There were tens of thousands of killings. There was extortion. They cut up the country into sort of rival patches. And if you crossed from one place to the other, you could be perceived as belonging to a rival gang and killed. So there was very significant limitations on even how much people could move around their cities. So, you know, I'm not surprised because people have seen a huge change in their lives. And the fact that this took place under a system that was not fully respecting democratic rights, I think does not bother people as much since they see that big change in their own daily existence. You know, seeing the numbers coming out of El Salvador, the vast majority of people appeared to vote for Bukele. And I do want to note that there were a lot of problems with the vote count. The internet went down and there were other problems. But nobody seems to be doubting that Bukele won the election. And opinion polls leading up to the vote really do mirror his overwhelming popularity. But still, taking this all in, at least for me, it sets off these red flags, right? Like, was this a free and fair election? How strong or robust really was the opposition here? So can you speak to that and to who was running against him and how much this is an actual accurate reflection of how people in El Salvador are feeling? You know, the main two parties running against him are the parties that had been in existence since the Civil War. They're the leftist party, the FMLN, and the right-wing party, ARENA. And the thing is, they got very few votes, relatively speaking. And I think that's a reflection of how those parties, which in theory were part of the democratic El Salvador that emerged from the Civil War, those parties were really discredited. They were seen as ineffective in stopping the gang violence and uh, corrupt. So I think a lot of people saw the democracy that those parties were such a part of as really just not effective and almost not legitimate because of the level of corruption and um, official graft that they experienced. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be helpful to go back and understand a little bit more about what El Salvador was like before Bukele kind of came onto the scene. So can you describe the conditions there and the problems that this country has been dealing with for quite a while? So El Salvador had a devastating civil war through the 80s. It had suffered from tremendous income inequality for a long time. And the gangs are probably the biggest problem, I would say, because of both the security threat they posed, and that was everything from, you know, killing people to they could grab your teenage daughter and decide uh, she would be their girlfriend or something like that. Extortion was huge. 
So the business community suffered quite a bit from that. There were problems with the economy. You know, it's a country where there was really quite significant migration to the United States, both during the war and then after because of the poverty, but also, you know, the violence was really quite extraordinary. And so how did Bukele end up being the the guy who says that he could fix all of this? He came in as an independent. He didn't want to be part of the traditional system in his description. And he was a guy who I think both had a very strong presence. He knew how to be in the media constantly. You know, he was very strong and continues to be very present on social media. And then, you know, interestingly, when he came into power... His predecessors had already begun to really break the power of the gangs. The murder rate was going down. It went down in his first few years, but not dramatically. And then it was really in 2022 where he declared the state of exception or state of emergency. And that's when the big break came. Authorities in El Salvador have been conducting a massive security operation as part of a crackdown on gangs in the country. A state of emergency that gave way to mass arrest and tougher punishment to gang members already behind bars. The police and the military went out and, particularly in the first several months, detained suspects all over the place, you know, in their houses, in their backyards, at construction sites. They were put into uh, prisons, packed very tightly. In some cases, they were stripped to their undershorts, packed together, you know, videos taken of how they were essentially lined up, you know, almost like sardines. In some cases, their heads shaved. There was a sort of message being sent, I think, with these videos that Bukele was going to be really tough on gangs and they didn't dare try to challenge him. The president touting the efforts on social media, even asking parents to show the videos to their teenage children and warn them saying gangs can only lead to prison or death. So 75,000 people have been put in jail under this state of emergency for allegedly or possibly being connected to gangs. And it's just a massive part of the population, more than 1% of the population of El Salvador. And tell me about some of the conversations that you've had with people there who experienced all this firsthand. You know, I was in El Salvador writing about the gangs a few months back, and I went to a town sort of on the periphery of San Salvador that had been part of what they call the red zone. It was really an area totally controlled by gangs. I met with a man named Victor Barahona, a man in his 50s, community journalist, And his story shows what it's like for someone who lives in a part of El Salvador that has become safer, feels much safer. But also, this shows the costs of the approach Bukele has taken, of people being detained, it seems, arbitrarily if they're linked to the gangs. He had lived in the community quite a long time, and as we walked around, people were all greeting him, and the people in his town were telling me how happy they were about Bukele and how much freer they are now to walk around, to keep their stores open, not so worried about their daughters being, you know, raped or something like that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was very ironic because Victor had just been released from prison. And he says it was all apparently some kind of 
false information or something, or some kind of misunderstanding, because he says there's been no evidence. So Barona told me that one day in June of 2022, he was at home, and he gets a knock on the door, and it completely upended his life. So it was the national police, and they asked if they could come into his house, and he said, well, I had nothing to worry about, of course, come on in. They asked if he had a tattoo, and uh, he rolled up his sleeve and said, Yes, I have an artistic tattoo. It was a rose he'd gotten many years before. Hmm. And, and what happened to him next? Well, to his surprise, he was arrested and taken to prison where he ultimately uh, would be held for months. And he told me he was amazed at the number of people being held in that facility. He said it was almost like a factory and there were just huge numbers of people. And what else did he say about that experience? You know, he talked about just how terrible the conditions were in prison, how tightly packed the men were. Here he's telling me about how they were crammed together like sliced bread. They didn't receive much food. Everybody lost a huge amount of weight. People started getting sick. And he had no idea why he was imprisoned. And then eventually he was released in May after 11 months in jail. And so how does he reflect on that experience and how has it made him feel about Bukele? Having been so active in his community, he totally understood how his neighbors liked Bukele. But while people were nice to him, their enthusiasm for the president and for their own increased sense of security didn't seem to be affected by the fact that their neighbor, this man, had been locked up for 11 months in quite terrible conditions. It was a sort of almost a split screen type thing. Yeah. And how widespread is this experience in terms of people there who have been held without reason, without due process, and in some cases indefinitely? I talked to human rights activists, particularly the human rights group Christosal, uh, which has documented a lot of the alleged abuses. They see this as an enormous problem. They say there's thousands of people who have been locked up, apparently without any ties, to gangs. There have been well over 100 deaths of detainees. They talk about systemic torture. Now, the vice president of the country said this past week that he acknowledged that they have made errors, he said, and around 7,000 people have been released. But his response was that overall the big picture is nobody's perfect and the results uh, speak for themselves. Coming up, we will hear about how Bukele's presidency is viewed beyond El Salvador, including by the United States. We'll be right back. At 
at different points during Bukele's first presidency, U.S. officials have expressed concern about what they see as the potential deterioration of democracy in El Salvador and alleged human rights violations. But at the same time, isn't a safer El Salvador, or at least what's perceived to look that way, kind of what the U.S. wants? I mean, we talk about the the push factors that are bringing so many migrants, including migrants from Central America, to the U.S., that oftentimes they're fleeing because of safety, because of these gangs in their home country, and that the U.S. says, look, we can't do it alone. We need these countries to partner with us to help make it safer for people in their home countries so they don't have to flee all the way to the U.S. You have to improve conditions there. And in some ways, it sounds like Bukele has managed to achieve that, that he has been successful in doing the thing that the U.S. has asked so many countries to aim for. I mean, that's kind of the tension. During the Trump administration, the U.S. was very supportive of Bukele because Trump was like, stop migration and that's all I need. (laughs) Thank you. Mm -hmm. So when the Biden administration came back in, there was more criticism from the U.S. of you know, human rights violations, democratic backsliding, corruption. But, you know, (laughs) where it gets complicated is that the Biden administration, despite having gone through that period of criticism, now has kind of muted their criticism, partly because they realize Bukele is so popular, he's going to be around for a while, and they're Mm going to have to deal with him. They think it wasn't a winning strategy to criticize him. And it's still a country that, uh, you know, the U.S. wants to interact with to slow migration. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken put out a statement congratulating Bukele and the Salvadoran people. And there was a mention in that statement of uh, there'd be continued conversations about democratic governability, but it was not a high point of the message. Has Bukele himself responded to some of these allegations that um, what he's doing amounts to, like, widespread human rights violations? You know, he's taken a very public stance that, you know, I'm not going to be nice to gangs. But at the same time, he also says, if you want to know how people in El Salvador feel, look at the polls. He's enjoyed consistently high ratings between 80 and 90 percent. So he basically says, look, people in my country are a lot happier with me that leaders of other countries, you know, have in terms of popularity. And he points to the significant violence problems all around Latin America and portrays himself as a success, saying, you know, I'm doing what Salvadorans want and you should, you know, butt out, basically. Mary Beth, you know, it also feels important to talk about the fact that Bukele ran for re-election at all. My understanding is that according to the law, that the president is supposed to just have one term, and that's it. So how did he end up running for re-election, and what did it take to make that possible? In the midterm elections in 2021, his party won a substantial control of Congress, and that allowed them to really remake the judiciary to replace a lot of the judges on the Supreme Court as well as in other bodies. So basically, the Supreme Court looked at the Constitution, even though scholars say it's quite clear presidents in El Salvador are not eligible for immediate reelection. They decided that he could run again hmm. uh, as long as he stepped down temporarily, which he did in November. He took a leave of absence. Wait, a leave of absence for like two months? <laughs> yes. They read the Constitution to 
allow that, uh, which most people don't see as actually consistent with what the Constitution says. Mm -hmm. So, and I think, you know, one of the concerns now is he just will have such an extraordinary majority in Congress that, you know, would he change the Constitution to stay on even longer? He says he won't, but there's a lot of concern among the pro-democracy activists that that could happen. So when Bukele paints this picture that he has now created this significantly safer situation in in El Salvador, that this could be a model for other Latin American countries dealing with the same problems with criminal networks, how much should we believe this narrative? Or how skeptical should, should we be that this is really the truth of the picture? Well, you know, there, it's interesting because there are so many countries now talking about following the Bukele model, whether it's Ecuador, whether it's uh, politicians even in places like Costa Rica, which has traditionally been quite peaceful and has no army. It's an idea that's talked about a lot because we are in a moment in Latin America where people's perception of insecurity is really rising. You do see a lot of organized crime activity However, when you look at El Salvador, it is particular. One thing is it's very small. It's the size of New Jersey, very small country. So it's not clear what works in El Salvador would work necessarily in bigger countries. On top of that, I think a lot of critics will say, well, okay, you've locked up 75,000 people, but how are you going to keep them locked up? I mean, are you going to be able to finance prisons? Uh, there, There doesn't seem to have been much yet in terms of putting folks on trial, And then I think there's also just questions about whether there was a negotiation with the gang leadership. In other words, whether the Bukele model is truly a crackdown or whether it's something a little more complicated. Mm. There are questions about was it his tough stance against the gangs that really undid them in the end, or did he cut a secret deal with the leadership and allow some of them to go free and sort of cut off the top while cracking down on the lower ranks. There's a real question about that. He denies it. So, Mary Beth, I know that you've reported so much throughout Latin America over the years, and including in El Salvador in the past. What do you think Bukele's apparent win in El Salvador means both for other countries in the region who are looking at the situation in El Salvador, potentially seeing a model or something to move toward, but also for El Salvador itself and um, what its future could potentially hold? Yeah, you know, Bukele has become such an important reference point for other countries in Latin America right now that are going through real periods of crime, organized crime. There's a lot of panic on the part of citizens, and clearly politicians see that he is hugely popular for this quite iron-fisted approach to crime and in consolidating power the way he has. I do think there's a lot of questions as to where El Salvador winds up. You know, the economy has not been doing very well. I think there, you know, are a lot of really grim stories in Latin America about leaders who consolidate power and try to continue ruling with a strong hand. Many of them wind up in bad shape. And, you know, one of the things you could look at in El Salvador that's often lost amid all the celebrating of his success with security, there's a lot less access to data than there used to be, including crime data. So it's quite hard to actually find out what the homicide rate is. Now, it's down a lot, for sure. But at some point, people may realize that there were a lot of rights that they had, even 
in a system that was a troubled democracy, and they have weakened or disappeared under this type of rule. So clearly there's been a trade-off in El Salvador, and I think the question is, uh, a few years from now, when he may not be as popular, will people regret that they supported a democracy or a leader who was willing to weaken or end some of the rights they'd once enjoyed? Mary Beth, thank you so much for explaining all this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Mary Beth Sheridan is a correspondent covering Mexico and Central America for The Post. Before we go, a few notes about things happening here in the U.S. Yesterday, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, faced impeachment by the House of Representatives. And the vote failed. This was surprising because Republicans control the House. And they'd been pushing for his impeachment, arguing that Mayorkas has not done enough to stop people trying to enter the U.S. at the southern border. But three Republican congressmen voted no, including one surprise vote from Wisconsin Representative Mike Gallagher. This stunned the House floor into a standstill. You can read more about what played out and what could be next at WashingtonPost.com. Also, another story that we're watching— Tomorrow, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments about whether former President Donald Trump is eligible for the presidency under the 14th Amendment. This case is going to the Supreme Court after Colorado's highest court ruled that Trump is an insurrectionist. We'll have full coverage across the Post and here on Post Reports tomorrow of these arguments. But in the meantime, if you have not yet listened to Tuesday's episode about the 91-year-old Republican who helped bring this case forward, be sure to check that out. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Monica Campbell. We had additional reporting from Carmen Valeria Escobar. And thank you to Marisa Belak. If you love the show and like what you just heard today, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 